This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. The one constant in every one of these big promotions I, I got is I was terrified, but I said yes. You know, that's a common theme with many of the women I've spoken to. I was terrified, but I went forward. I was terrified, but I went forward because I learned over time, your greatest enemy is fear. That, that is the worst thing that can happen. Because fear of what? The, the worst thing that can happen to you is you'll fail. And oftentimes you won't. But I think, you know, living in England, Winston, I think Winston Churchill said, success is the ability to go from one failure to another with great enthusiasm. I think he actually said with undiminished enthusiasm. <laughs> with undiminished enthusiasm. So what would be the worst thing that could happen? So, you know, you, you go forward. There's also some other great line of his that goes something like failure is not fatal and success is not final, meaning yes. you're going to just have to pick up and keep learning and going. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Skiing fanatic takes part-time department store sales job to pay the bills until the ski resort job she really wants is available. That's how the career of today's guest started. Marty Wickstrom never took that ski resort job, however. Instead, she stayed at the Nordstrom Company for over 20 years, working her way across all segments of the business and rising steadily up the ranks until she was in charge of all the mainline stores in the United States. Then she moved to England, first as the number two at Harrods, and then as that legendary store's managing director, the first and still only woman to lead Harrods in its 185-year history. She's still going strong, now as a director, mentor, and investor in a variety of luxury goods brands and startup companies. Marty understands the workings of fashion and retail like an astronaut understands the workings of her spacecraft. She is the consummate systems thinker. As you'll hear, her trailblazing path in retail and luxury goods was propelled by a desire to have a say in how things are done. Her bottomless curiosity, a fearlessness about asking questions, and a quest for personal excellence. I learn something from Marty every time we talk, and trust you will too. Marty Wickstrom, it is so wonderful to talk to you. The only thing that could be better if we were actually together again instead of doing this by Zoom. But hello, dear friend. Hello, dear friend. And I wish we were together also. It's been too long. 
Where am I reaching you? Tell me about where you are right now. Today, I'm in central London. So I live in central London. I also have a house out in the country, which I spend quite a bit of time in the beautiful English countryside. But today, I'm right in central London. I prefer to be in central London when I'm working and when I have busy weeks because I, I tend to be more productive. Yeah, I can imagine. But I'll bet the country house was a, quite a good pandemic refuge. Oh, it was the best. Absolutely the best. And we spent a lot of time there during complete lockdowns and joy of having my son and his fiance come and spend a great deal of time with us also. So that was the silver lining. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we have so much to cover about you and your career, a really re remarkable career in retail and luxury brands and, and leadership. But I love to start these conversations back at the beginning and learn a little bit more about the young Marty Wickstrom. You were born and raised in the Rockies, I understand, but tell me a bit more about where and your family and, and who the who was the five-year-old Martha Wickstrom? Oh, boy. Well, I am uh, fourth of six kids, so you can only imagine. It wasn't unusual to have these big families back then, and I said we were kind of a herd, and we just kind of got herded along. Um, being fourth, I, I was fourth, so I was the bottom of one group, and then quite a gap between my youngest sister and brother. So in a way, I was the youngest kid in a lot of things, and then uh, smack dab in the middle, because that's always been curious about the characteristics that go with middle children and the characteristics that go with kids that are first or last in families. But I would say overall, Kathy, I, I mean, I was raised in the Rocky Mountains, so I had this extraordinary grandmother who was a concert pianist and, you know, amazing. So she was such an influence in our lives. So we all played instruments and all did music. My dad was a businessman. My mother was really sporty. So we did all these different things, but I gravitated towards sport. I really loved it. So I always would rather be practicing a piano or being out doing sport or doing out, being out, wandering around was always much more interesting. Yeah, no contest there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I would say overall, Kathy, I, I was quite shy. I think at that time, there was so much being said above me that I became a, a great observer of life. And I was always watching people, processes, behaviors. And I actually think that formed a lot of my early foundation, probably to success. Wow. Were there any early interests or influences, say, from age five to your early teen years that, as you look back on, recognized, gee, that kind of, that was a little glimmer of insight or moment I spotted something that struck me that's guided me since? Could you tell at all? Well, I could tell a couple of things. First of all, it wasn't so much competing against others. It was competing against myself that I really cared about. And I was involved in sports that were timed. So the time was really the, the critical issue. Yes, there was first, second, third, but it wasn't a matter of beating someone else. It was a matter of making the time. So I really realized that I have this competitive nature, but it was more against um, the expectation of playing against myself. Against a standard of excellence. A standard of excellence rather than I'm going to kill you so I can win. Yeah, yeah. Were you very fashion or what kind of little girl play did you do? It's funny. I, I liked clothes. I always liked clothes. And I can remember being young and, and liking clothes and liking, but not, not obsessed about them, but just thinking how fun that was or how interesting that was or, you know, wearing something that was a little bit more daring or fun. I will say, though, you know, I was in Sun Valley when I was eight. And we were at the pool at the lodge at Sun Valley in Idaho. And there on the other side of the pool was Mrs. Hemingway with the Hemingways. And she came walking around. Ernest Hemingway wife? Yes. And wow. she had fishnet stockings. 
And I think I was eight and I was, I was just, I just couldn't believe it. I was obsessed with those fishnet stockings. <laughs> now, who would ever notice something like that when you're eight years old? But I thought those were the coolest things in the world. <laughs> and she'd probably gotten them in Paris and it was before everybody else in the world had fishnet stockings or whatever. But it goes again into kind of that observation. A lot of times I might forget someone's name, but I usually don't forget what shoes they're wearing. Oh, interesting. Even today. Yeah. Even today, even wow. today is absolutely fascinating. Usually I can tell people what they were wearing the first time I met them. And in high school, middle school, high school, were you the studious kid, the tomboy, um, the the party girl? No, I would not say I was a tomboy. I would say I was a participant, you know, like get up and go, you know, jump in, have fun. It's interesting because I wasn't exactly academic. I don't think you would call me terribly academic, but I did interesting things. It was funny. I was looking back over a high school yearbook, Kathy, and I was a pace setter, which means I was one of the 10 kids uh, chosen out of my graduating class that was considered a person of real excellence. And that was fascinating to me. It was a a graduating class of a thousand kids. I was also my senior class president. So that said that I was interested in leadership early on. Interesting. Do you remember what motivated you to be that? Was it sort of social standing or you saw things in, around the school that could be better that you wanted to help fix? That was more more it. I thought I can be involved in a group of people that has a say in what we do and the kinds of events we do. And uh, that seemed interesting to me in that leadership context, context. But it was always around kind of a collaborative process. Yeah. And then what then after high school? Were you at college bound right away? I I mean, it was always expected in my family that you go to college. But, you know, um, I have to say back then, I wish I would have possibly done it a different way. I don't know. I was I was obsessed with skiing. So I wanted to be someplace where I was going to be in a ski hill. And I think back and I think, oh, why didn't I kill myself to go to Stanford? You know, I go to to that college campus and look at that and go, oh, my gosh, that's so unbelievable. They don't have snow and hills, though. I mean, you know, they don't have snow and hills. So it was expected that we go to college, but it wasn't it wasn't a process with us that you sit down and map out every grade you need and GPA and what you're going to do around your SATs and everything in order to get into all these different schools. It's just your parents kind of said, which schools do you need me to write my $15 check for your (laughs) it was simpler. It was way simpler back then. It was, it was up to us. Yeah. It was absolutely up to us. I did have one, um, I, I don't think I've ever told this story, but I did have one high school counselor and she was not really a fan of mine. I don't really know why, but you know how sometimes you mesh with people and sometimes you don't. And she told me maybe I should go to beauty school. <laughs> I really would like to go back and see her here today. I, I mean, if there's a lesson learned, it's like, don't listen to everybody. I mean, everybody has an opinion and it's not necessarily the right one. Yeah. It's, you know, I always think of the athletic version of that when you're on the field, actually playing the game with all the mastery that that's involved in. There's some yokel up in the, in the bleachers yelling yeah. at you as if they know what's going on. Just... Absolutely. I've had to explain Monday morning quarterback to my yeah. working friends. I don't quite know what that means, but oh, I, can, I can explain it to them. So it was, in, it was fascinating. But I think in those days, Kathy, people didn't have the kind of expectations for women um, and, and for the girls growing up. They just didn't have those expectations. There were certain careers that you could go into that might be teaching, nursing, different things. But there were not icons in business And so there were not a lot of role models unless people had come through that realm through their family businesses. Yeah. 
what what year did you finish high school? I finished in 74. Yeah. So, yes, a business leadership track for women basically didn't exist at all. It didn't exist at all. Not to mention the fact, Kathy, that, uh, you know, global, uh, a global track uh, was just impossible to imagine. Yeah. The world was not as globalized then as it is now. So what ski hill did you end up choosing for college? Well, I first went to Colorado State University for a year, and then I left and went to the University of Utah. And it's funny, people always go, University of Utah, that's very strange. But let's face it, it's sitting in the middle. uh, It's 20 minutes into some of the best skiing in the world, some of the best powder in the world. The U.S. ski team is based in, you know, Park City, Utah. It's an incredible place and a great university, actually. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's odd. I mean, occasionally I have people that want to meet me because they want to meet somebody who's gone to school in Utah. (laughs) (laughs) I had somebody come up. I had somebody come up to me at the annual uh, general annual general meeting at, at uh, Richmond who wanted to meet me because I'd never met anyone from Utah before. <laughs> Alien from another planet. <laughs> so, what did you major in? Uh, I majored in. Uh, you'll laugh. It was called outdoor commercial recreation. I wanted to run. I mean, if you really sized it up, if I thought big, really big, I wanted to be in the leadership team at maybe. Vail, Colorado. I wanted to be in the leadership team at maybe Sun Valley, uh, Idaho. I, I really wanted to be in the ski industry. Wow. Yeah. What was the content of that major like? Well, it was really business oriented, business and development oriented. It's running. We did, I was with a group of students that did the feasibility study on the Cliff Lodge at Snowbird, Utah, which was actually built off the back of that. That was part of the investment thesis for that, for that lodge to be built. Wow. As an yeah. undergrad. As an undergrad. Now, I think that's really unusual. I think we had some graduate students working with us also. But I remember that being so surprised that those kinds of things may be the first time that you ever realize that that kind of project actually goes to get something done. Yeah. That's tangible. That you produced something that actually created a change in the world. Yes. Yes. It, this major lodge that could withstand avalanches and that would be a big part of that especially in a canyon that um, uh, is a very important water source to um, Salt Lake City and is protected heavily protected so that was that was an interesting project and was it while you were in college that you started working part-time at Nordstrom no it was right after I finished college I'd worked in Aspen Colorado and then I came back and I had worked for Pete Seibert And talk about a unique opportunity. I didn't really realize that Pete Seibert was the founder of Vail, Colorado. And he was in the 10th Mountain Division. He was very injured during World War II. He came back. Just for context, the 10th Mountain Division is a division in the U.S. Army that specializes in winter mountain warfare. Absolutely. They they go out and uh, their reconnaissance, I guess, would be out in the wilderness. Yeah, in 10 feet of snow. Exactly. So in northern, maybe northern Italy or in the Alps or different places. So he was a U.S. Olympian and he was terribly injured in World War II, but came down back and made another Olympic bid. And he had during World War II been exposed to all kinds of amazing places in Europe and had visited all these amazing ski areas and things. And he came back and he kept looking at this mountain and he founded Vail. I went to work for him. And then I, I worked for him and also at Snow Basin because he bought Snow Basin. But at that time, he you kind of did whatever was needed. You went to the accounting office one day, they were working on a land swap with the Forest Service. You'd, 
I, I would go and be the Easter bunny. Somebody <laughs> said, okay. uh, so this person skied up and it was me under the, under the head of the Easter bunny because I, I was working because somebody who was in, uh, was a hostess didn't show up that day. So, you know, they just said, go do this. And I would do things like take investors out or, you know, do picnics with people. And You were and sort of the hostess and gopher. But you know what, when you're young, again, Gosh, you know, I think one of the worst things for young people is when they have it set in their mind what they won't do, rather than I'll just do anything because we're just the sum of our experiences, all yeah. of us. Yeah. You know, so if you just keep gathering experiences and who cares when you're young, you might meet somebody pretty darn interesting. How had you met Pete? He had bought Snow Basin and I just applied for a job there, but I ended up being around him quite a lot. So being around a person like that, you know, sometimes we're just influenced through the, just the osmosis of being around people who are very creative and very smart. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So you're working for Pete and you finish college. I finish college. I go back to Salt Lake City and Martin and I, my husband, Martin Wickstrom of, of 40 years. You had met in college, right? I'm in college. We got married. And so I took a job at Nordstrom for three months because in November, I'd go back to Snow Basin. So in November, Nordstrom said, we really like you. Why don't you say we'll give you a management job? You should stay with us. And I stayed 20 years. So talk about an accident, a real accident. But they said, we'll give you a management job. And I thought this is really interesting. I will say, though, I, I thought the values of the company and the entrepreneurial spirit of the company was really a good match for me. But you have to remember, it was a tiny company. Um, it was a Northwest-based company, and the most Eastern division of the company was Utah. So there I was in a tiny, tiny division of a very small company at the time. Just to fast forward and give our listeners a sense of where this is going to go, part-time sales associate at the Utah branch of a Western department store. And some 20 years later, you are the president of all mainline stores in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. For that bit of accident. Yeah. Yeah. For that bit of, bit, bit of accident, uh, I ended up doing that job, which was, you know, in a company that was probably about six and a half billion. But I had done many, 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 many jobs in between. <laughs> yeah. Well, so tell us a little more about that that road and that progression. And I, I'm really curious to know, you know what lessons you learned along the way, which ones stand out to you about being in an organization, because you now were in a very different kind of place than on Pete Seibert's wing, and about you know the retail and fashion world, and then about Marty Wickstrom as a, as a leader and executive. I think that the thing that also has sustained me in my life is incredible curiosity and hard work because nothing could prepare me for the jobs that I took on. You know, okay, I become a sales assistant and I think I'm going to try to become really good at this. And then I become a department manager and then a buyer and then a buyer for a bigger division. And, you know, we pick up my husband and I and move to Portland, Oregon because it's a big promotion. Um, and he, he decides to do that with me. And then we pick up and go to Southern California because it's a big promotion and I'm going to have the chance to travel internationally to do the international collection buys. So that to me was just so exciting to be able to do that. But along the way, learning what an open to buy was, learning what a gross margin was, learning, you know, rate of sale, sell it, sell out. I mean, I, I mean there is no school for this. Did you have mentors or supervisors that helped train you up or was it sort of throw you in the pond and see if you could swim? Well, I always think, throw you not on the pond, throw you in the deep end. 
but there were always people around who are willing to teach, but you had to be willing to ask or learn or listen from them. And uh, so I, I can't say that I wasn't around people who were very, very, very smart. Again, uh, I observed them. I watched what they did. I observed their, their actions, their behavior, I, what was important to them. Uh, you know, even in a showroom, what were they choosing? How did they look at a runway show? How did they decide what was going to sell, what wasn't going to sell? What were you going to really put your money into? Did you have chances to talk with them at, at some length around the flanks of those events? Or was it really just watch and infer what they were doing? Watch and infer and ask questions. But they okay. didn't, no one came to you with a manual about how to do any of this. But they were not withholding if you asked a question. No, 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 no. I worked around a group of people that were just terrific. Yeah. But they, their job wasn't to teach me necessarily. There was always somebody who was um, a supervisor who would answer questions and challenge you on things. But I, I, I worked collaboratively with all other people that had similar jobs too. You often hear it said that if a man's offered a, a new job that's a big step and maybe only has 1% of the experience, he'll say, heck yes, I'll go and jump in. And women will tend to say, well, I, gee, I've only done one of those 200 things. I don't think I'm really ready. <laughs> and by the way, that's absolutely the truth. Women will tell you why they're not qualified and men will tell you why it doesn't matter that they're not qualified. <laughs> that's not that's not wholly true, Kathy, as you know, because we know so many great men who are self-actualized. However, there's broad truth. We challenge ourselves a lot more. And I will say the one the one constant in every one of these big promotions I, I got is I was terrified, but I said yes. Uh, so, you know, that's a common theme with many of the women I've spoken to. I was terrified, but I went forward. I was terrified, but I went forward because I learned over time, your greatest enemy is fear. That That is the worst thing that can happen because fear of what? And I think fear of what? The, the worst thing that can happen to you is you'll fail. And... Oftentimes you won't, but I think, you know, living in England, I think Winston Churchill said, success is the ability to go from one failure to another with great enthusiasm. I think he actually said with undiminished enthusiasm. With undiminished enthusiasm. (laughs) So what would be the worst thing that could happen? So, you know, you, you go forward. There's also some other great line of his that goes something like, failure's not fatal and success is not final, meaning... You're yes. going to just have to pick up and keep learning and going. You are. And that's that's the, the common thing. So one of the big pivot points was coming out of what I call merchandising and going into store management. Somebody coming, you know, a person coming to me in the Nordstrom organization saying, we think you'd make a good store manager. I'm like, well, why do you think that? Well, we just think you would. And do I know what that means? <laughs> and do I even know what that means? And the answer was, I didn't have a clue. I landed on the doorstep at eight o'clock in the morning at a store that had 400 employees and all of these faces were looking at me as if I had any answers. I didn't even know how the doors got open and shut. <laughs> <laughs> so merchandising, remember, I'm just your space cadet friend here. In merchandising, mm-hmm. help me understand that. You're completely focused on the products and, and wares you're going to bring in the store? Yeah, you're completely focused on the mix of the product that you're going to buy, what you're going to put into a store, the quantity what you're going to actually, what the quantity is and what the sell-through of that is. Also, how you're going to... What does sell-through mean? It means that not what you not what you buy, but what you actually, what actually goes out the door. Okay. So I don't want to buy 100 of them and end up with 99 still no, in you my don't. warehouse. You, you want to buy 100 and, and not mark down more than about 15. Okay. Would be, would be a really good rule of thumb. Or none. Or none, yeah, yeah. 
And so it's the mix. And is it also anything about the placement and design of layout of the store, like the presentation? You're looking at the entire proposition of what you're buying, you know, the area and the square footage that you're buying for, what the fixturing is and how you're going to arrange those fixtures, how you're going to lay that stuff out, how you're going to make, you know, what do you buy that goes together? How do you paginate a floor so that, you know, it's encouraging and interesting to the customer. And it's really a lot easier to sell the customer multiples rather than sell them one thing. Yeah. So in that world, you're working on some size of a team that's planning this out for a cluster of stores or all stores? Um, yes, for a cluster of stores or, or all stores in the case of a couple of things that I was buying. Mm -hmm. And then you go to store manager and now you're like the mayor of a building that has 400 citizens. I'm the mayor of the building with 400 citizens and we have waterworks. And you don't, <laughs> and you don't know how the doors open. <laughs> and I don't know how the doors open. So first of all, I don't know anything about security and security teams. Uh, so I don't know anything about that. I don't know how the money gets in the money bags that goes into the registers. I don't know how we do deposits. I don't even know how the phones get answered. But you're in charge. But I'm in charge. So you know what I did? I just, Kathy, there wasn't anything I could do but say, I've got to learn this. And this is where, you know, I always think my husband Martin came in handy at this time because I called him and said, I think I've made a terrible mistake. I, but my old job is gone. And what am I going to do? And he said, well, you can go out the front door or the back. <laughs> Great line. <laughs> Great line for anybody. In, in other words, buck up, get competitive with yourself and get going. So I did something, Kathy. I just wandered around. You know that old saying of MBWA, managed by wandering around. I wandered around. So I would show up at four in the morning in a pair of jeans and say, I want to know how the freight comes into the back of these, you know, this store. I want to know what the manifests are like. I want to know how it goes out. I want to know how we downdate it into the store, how we account for the inventory that's sitting in the store. And then I want to watch how the money goes into the money, you know, goes into the registers. How do we do the deposits? So I go sit in the, in the cash room at six in the morning and do that. I'd go be the operator. I'd go down why they made arrests of people shoplifting to make sure that I understood legally everything that was involved in that and what our responsibilities were. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you were, I mean, that must have been well received by your team, I would think, because here's the store manager essentially coming around and saying, your job is really important. I want to understand how it works. Not, not I can't imagine you were came with an attitude of, I'm not sure if you're performing well. It was it not at all you as a learner. Tell me what you do and how you do it and yeah. why we do it. The other thing I would ask, Kathy, is why do you do that that way? And oftentimes I'd say, who knows, some person somewhere. <laughs> Ivory Tower thought we ought to do it that way. And I'd say, well, do you think we should change it or fix it? So most of the time, what I did is I went around and fixed things. And because I fixed things, people were like, wow, that's cool. She can fix stuff that's just ridiculous that we do or we have to do, or we don't have something or people aren't communicating with us or we're always out of sizes or people don't buy our product properly or, you know, so I could find that I could influence the outcome by leveraging things. And I would do other things like the head of footwear for the entire Nordstrom organization came and he would walk, he walked the stock rooms with me and told me, how do you organize a stock room? How do you lay it out? How do you flag shoes? You know, like you put one shoe up out of a box. So it's very easy for people to look ah. down the aisles and aisles and aisles of shoes. But when you think about that, you know, you're dealing in dozens of sizes of shoes between full sizes and half sizes and different colors and the complexity of that buy yeah, uh, is, 
unbelievable and that depth of inventory and how it's moving. And he spent probably a whole day with me going through that. So I did have people that really came in and participated. And actually at that time, also John Nordstrom oversaw the operations of the stores. And I spent an entire day in the tailor shop looking at alteration tickets. Wow. What was being altered, why it was being altered, and specifically in the men's clothing area. Because if you don't alter suits properly, they may never fit properly. Yeah. So one thing I learned is the way you anchor a suit on the shoulders and what you do. And if salespeople are selling suits to make the sale and not selling the proper size, you probably will have a return. Wow. And John Nordstrom, was he the founder or the son of the founder? No, he was the third generation. So there was Jim Nordstrom and John Nordstrom, who were brothers. And then Bruce Nordstrom, who was a cousin, uh, who were primarily there as, as co-chairman. Okay. John Nordstrom was great at operations, and he, he spent a lot of time with me. Interestingly enough, the second store I managed, I hired his son to be a department manager, and I didn't realize I wouldn't let him go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas so his dad would come to California. <laughs> <laughs> so I would, I would have him in my store. You talk about telling the boss's son no must have been an interesting <laughs> process. Well, you know, none of us could go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas. It was too critical of time. You yeah. know, we, we, set th- we set Christmas up the night before Thanksgiving and set the whole thing uh, because we never did Christmas before Thanksgiving. So each holiday had its own special timing. And then, you know, we worked solid and we went Christmas day and came back at six o'clock the next morning. Yeah, so for all the returns, all the returns, all the, and the men's sales started on that day. So very big business day. Yeah, That's amazing. You and I meet in your time at Nordstrom's when you've now relocated from Southern California to the Northern Virginia area. And I think there was one stop after that back with the mainline group before you decamped to England. Tell me about your move to England. Well, I I always say, you know, which fork in the road do you take? The the less, you know, risky would be to stay in the United States. But uh, I picked up and I was offered this opportunity at Harrods. So that little tiny store in Knightsbridge, that's a million square feet under one roof. I think today Harrods does about 1.8 billion in revenue in one store. So it's a corporation and a store, but they also had a fairly big holding company. So it was really looking at the assets of the entire holding company, as well as the store and trying to make that uh, more productive. And you went over as assistant managing director, the number two, basically? Number two and became number one very quickly. Yeah. And, and that, that company, it's a British institution. There, have been, there are people that have been working there 40 years. And one thing, this is another thing about, you know, the curiosity of, you know, leaving one place. I mean, what is it? Two, two countries separated by a language. I thought I knew <laughs> what they were saying, and I had no idea what they were saying. If, I, if, I, if I, they'd been speaking French, I would, I, I would have known I didn't know what they were saying. But I didn't realize when they said interesting, it didn't mean interesting. Oh. <laughs> I didn't realize when they said, we'll give it a think, it meant they would never think about it again. And that needs a little work, means that we're going to throw it in the trash and never look at it again. Oh, my. <laughs> the nuances in language were unbelievable. And to get my head around that. Yeah, interesting was a gentle slam. <laughs> Absolutely a gentle slam. That's fascinating. But what was that like? I mean, that's a multi-hundred-year-old institution. So you've come from this third-generation, family-founded, very entrepreneurial, its own set of values, to this new setting. 
Yes. Obviously, lots of your knowledge and expertise translated directly, you know, sales are sales and money is money, but it had to be an interesting cultural change besides the language funnies. Well, it was a huge cultural change for for not just the language changes and uh, two different countries. It was a single store versus many stores. It was a privately held company versus a public company. So those are those are quite different in themselves. And um, it was held by uh, an entrepreneur. Most people know him because he's quite well known, but Mohammed Al-Fayed owned the store. And so I worked for him. And so how decisions were made, it was not always clear to me. It was usually clear to me at Nordstrom how decisions got made, but it wasn't always clear um, in an entrepreneurial company like that how decisions got made. But at the time, Diana and Doty had been killed in that tragic car accident. And he had this big company and we formed a partnership to get some things done that really needed to get done. So reworking things as big as, you know, the whole, the way the supply chain worked. Uh, I did all the segmentation work for the black card, which is the CRM program for the company today. I decide, wait, decipher that for me, the segmentation for the black card. CRM is a customer relationship management program a lot of times that people put in, but really where you start with that is looking at who's shopping in your store and how do they shop your store. So at the time, we had no idea who shopped in our store. We didn't have any understanding about the customers at all, um, so we could serve them better. So people would walk in and they'd buy things in the food department and walk out, and then they'd buy things in the jewelry department and walk out. But nobody in the organization looked at that and said, they shop with us in 20 different departments. Are there other things we should be doing or helping them with or ways that we should be communicating with these customers? So we called with a company called Dum Humphy, which was a big data company here, probably between 20 and 30 million transactions to kind of get some kind of pattern around our customers. From your data records. Mm -hmm. Because Harrods was run by room not run by as as a as a total unit like the shoe room the jewelry room yes huh so it came to uh you know if the sultan of brunei came in and spent two hundred fifty thousand on a piece of jewelry in a day or something you knew about it but but these people that were just wandering through that store shopping all the time um, most people didn't even know their names and we had customers that were spending over a million pounds a year and nobody in the store knew their names. And so to me, that was just, it was just unacceptable and crazy. So I, I would just, when we got a hold of these people, I was just, can you call them and ask if we can have a cup of tea? Could I take them to lunch? Could I take them to dinner? So I could just say, what motivates you to shop here? You've been shopping here for a long time. What, I mean, what could we do better? Um, how could we be more effective? So I was spending time with customers at at that level. And then we created a a program that was under what you would call a black card. So you signed up for a black card. the elite credit card kind of thing. Yes. It wasn't really a credit card, but it identified you and and it came with benefits. So this is sort of an early version of the loyalty program that's now quite commonplace. Yeah, it's very commonplace now, but it wasn't commonplace. And absolutely in the, in Europe, it was not common at all. Loyalty programs didn't exist in Europe at that yeah, time. They so. didn't really. I, there were two companies. There was Boots, the chemist, and really Tesco that had, you know, big loyalty the, programs. The grocery store, yeah. And so actually, um, 
Tesco, the head of Tesco made an appointment and came to see me because he wanted to know what I was doing. Because <laughs> he, he was like, what are you doing? Nobody knows about this kind of stuff. And they actually had, they had a holding in the Dumb Humvee business. And I was using Dumb Humvee to, to do the, the, the data guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we did that. I mean, Kathy, we were doing reorganizations. We were doing remodels. Many of the rooms in the flagship store of Harrods are listed, meaning that they are protected by British heritage. So we were doing remodels in listed rooms with British heritage. Historical listed rooms. Yeah. Very, very complicated things wow. to do. Wow. So remodeling, reorganizing the store. But, you know, I always say, what people say, what well, was the most difficult thing you did at Harrods? And I got rid of the one pound charge at the bathroom. They, when, you went into, when you went in to use the restroom at Harrods, you had to pay a pound to do that. That's crazy. I used to go up to our um, esteemed chairman and say, I'm going to a cocktail party tonight. And guess what we're going to talk about? We're going to talk about the one pound charge at the, at the restrooms. And he would say, that's too bad. Anyway, we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth on this a hundred times. And um, this is the difference between an entrepreneurial company and a public company. In a public company, you have restrooms because you want the customers to stay and shop longer. In that particular com company, we were just making people mad. But, you know, we also had these attendants that sat in chairs and took one pound coins. And you think about a pension liability or just the, just the benefit costs of people sitting in chairs. So one night I woke up and thought, oh my gosh. And I went up and showed him all of this. And uh, we made that change within days. Wow. It was great. But believe me, I mean, if you want to know something that really is noticeable, if I tell people I got rid of the one pound charge in the restrooms at, at Harrods, everybody knew what I was talking about. <laughs> Everyone in <laughs> London knew. Made, it made everybody in this whole community <laughs> mad. Now, you know, you can, I, I re-implemented SAP off of a complete failure. So when I got there, we had- And that's no another enterprise software pro program. It's an enterprise software system and it was the wrong system and we tried to customize it to do so it would work in the way we did business rather than change our business behavior and our processes to meet that system so i had to re-implement that because we were half in half out but we had no roll-up on our on our numbers meaning you couldn't tell what the aggregate business was doing not at all and so that was the hardest thing by far that i did in that business, but people would know what I'm talking about when I said the one pound charge at the bathroom. <laughs> if, if, if Marty Wickstrom is buried in a London cemetery, the gravestone will read, she got rid of she the one pound charge. charge. <laughs> <laughs> That's priceless. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I wanted to learn a little bit now also about your time in the really luxury brands world of Richemont. And for those peasants like me that didn't don't know much probably about the Richemont group. I mean, that's watches and jewelry and leather goods with all the super high-end names you might think of from Cartier to Mont Blanc to Vacheron, Constantin, Van Cleef and Arpels. What's very similar and what did you find is different about being a leader and an executive in that hyper-luxury world? Yeah, it's hyper. When I was at, we did business with all of those companies when I was at Harrods. And I had been in that world a bit because I was the designer buyer for Nordstrom at one time. So I, I had an affinity for, for luxury product. I think luxury, some people think it's price point or whatever. To me, luxury is rarity. It's building something or creating something that is beautiful, highly crafted, 
and unique and probably rare. But I went into the to the world of super rare. So uh, when I went to Richemont, nine watch brands, um, some of the best jewelry brands in the world. I mean, when you think about it, we had pretty shotguns in our portfolio. And each one of those guns takes up to 24 or 24 months to build because you start actual with shotguns, an actual shotgun. Yeah. It's a very famous shotgun company called Purdy. And um, you start by the stock and you build the stock to fit your, your, your body size, right down to choosing the engraving that goes on your gun. Very, I mean, all custom products. What does one of those guys cost? Um, you know, if you, if you could buy one off the shelf, they might cost 50,000. If you had the best engraver uh, at Purdy do a very complicated engraving on your, on your gun, it could cost 125,000 pounds. Yikes. <laughs> and a lot of people buy pairs. Oh, all right then. <laughs> <laughs> but what was it like working? What was it like working in there? I, and you were, I imagine, the only woman in that boardroom. Well, I'm the only woman who's ever run Harrods in 185 years. And so I was the first woman to ever step in the boardroom at, at Richemont. So, yeah, I was. So, it, you know, it was, a, I think, probably a culture shock in many ways. I had such an appreciation for the heritage of companies and what you might call the DNA. So one thing is to take a company forward, but when you are building, these are, these are heritage brands, they are historic. And I've worked in many of them over the years. Um, Harrods might've been considered a fairly historic, you know, over a hundred years old, 150 years old. But these are brands that, you know, we own the archive. We could look back over things that we had built and done over years, product, um, product creation. Um, those archives became so important to not only look back, but help guide you forward in product you were developing and how you were doing that. So um, craftsmanship just was everything. That's kind of like having your very own miniature Victoria and Albert Museum about just your brands and your products. Absolutely. And, you know, I used to say, Kathy, really, I used to call the Jaeger Lacoutre uh, watch factory, the NASA of watchmaking. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because the the intricacy of that, you should go there someday, Kathy. I mean, when you think about the detail of, of making these components and making double time components where you can see time on both sides and tiny, tiny, tiny parts that make a, a watch work. It's amazing. But that particular factory is just extraordinary. And so to go there with people who'd been building watches for 40 years and people who knew the intricacies of how to make a, a fine machine work, that was really something. I mean, how welcome were you as the senior, the CEO of that brand? Did you have well, I was the CEO of the fashion accessory. I was on the board for 11 years, so I got to see most of the product because I sat on a committee that was called the Product and Strategy Committee. So I got to see products that were being launched in all the brands. So probably twice or three times a year, we would have product meetings and people would bring things that they were interested in launching and putting into market. So we get to go through those, which was just fascinating. So I'm curious about what the dynamic was you're extraordinarily expert at this point, but you're the only woman in an all-male boardroom setting that I imagine was typically fairly elbows out, brash, competitive, you know, locker room competition. Tell me what that was like. Yeah. 
you know, I've always ignored that kind of stuff, Kathy, but there's days that you, it's hard to adore. There's, there's times that you don't want that to be gender-based, but it is. Um, and I also have always said to people is that sometimes when you look around a room and no one looks like you, it might be by design. It's possible that it's by design, that that's not really where they want the company to be. Um, I think in the, the world today is getting better at that. I'm getting better at recognizing that. And we're getting better at just even talking to ourselves about unconscious bias that we could possibly have. But I will say overall, the board members were sophisticated, smart, international business people. And most of them treated me very nicely and very well. Yeah. Yeah. It was more the internal politics. I think it wasn't really the boardroom politics. Interesting. Something that has fascinated me about my sense of that luxury world, and I'm please do tell me my sense is completely wrong. I'm just badly informed. But, you know, women are often the showcases for these fine products, uh, often the target market for these extraordinary products. And yet seldom, it seems, the power holders and decision makers in the companies now maybe moving slightly in, in a more gender balanced direction. But I'm wondering what your reaction to that sense of mine is. And, and are these brands playing to the man that's going to buy the fancy piece for his woman? Or are they, you know, it's, it's just an interesting owner, buyer, seller, designer, gender mix that's fascinated yeah. me. Yeah. Um, when you get into the leadership of many, many of, the, many of these companies, they're uh, highly male dominated. I think that is starting to get better. And you have women that are influencers in some companies today, but highly male dominated, which probably is why I, I look like such a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing we'll put on your, on your gravestone. <laughs> unicorn. <laughs> Got rid of the one pound charge and a unicorn. Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I, I think people were quite surprised to see me go to, go to Richemont and uh, to stay there for so many years. But I was surrounded by beautiful product, and I, I was learning. Well, then you left Richemont, and you did another really fascinating move and started your own fund to acquire and help develop luxury brands. And you've told me a few stories over the years about some of the companies you've invested in to help bring along and transform. But I wonder if you could share a story of maybe one of your favorite small startups that you spotted and and helped incubate. Okay. <laughs> a few of them. Today, I invested in a small lighting company called Tala. It was started by some graduate students out of Edinburgh to be environmental and to be LED based. And uh, that company, they plant trees for every, I think, 100 lights they sell. They plant a tree. They try to do everything in, a, in their supply chain and things in a sustainable and environmental uh, environmentally thoughtful way, but it's just terrific. We have a great CEO. We're doing collaborations and the company is growing just beautifully. We not only do, we all, not only manufacture bulbs and, and fixtures and things, but we also go in retrofit. So we'll go in and retrofit a, a whole company so that they're in LED lighting, which you, you know, Kathy, the, the gain, the savings you make in, in electrical power to do something like that. When you go to an all LED process in, in a company, you just, the savings are unbelievable on the drain on electricity. Yeah. So you're, you're just trying to do those kinds of things all the time. So as an investor, do you, how often do you meet with the company team and 
you're not management, so you're not actually running the day-to-day. So what's that interface like? Well, I get financials, and of course you look at those, and the CEO will call me, and I meet with him on occasion or with the team. They show me the things that they're doing, and I'll call and ask questions. Uh, I don't sit on the board of that company. Some of the companies I'm invested in, I sit on the board, but that one I don't. There's another company that, you know, Harry's of London, um, that was a footwear company that I took in its infancy and built it into a global company, making footwear for men with all kinds of comfort features. So for instance, a footbed that was actually, the footbed was made out of a material that was manufactured by Bayer, the pharmaceutical company. And it was originally made for people with bed sores, um, most specifically people that were either um, like invalid in some way or people who were burn victims because it didn't conduct heat. Ah, and we took wow. that product and made footbeds out of it. And so your footbed, you know how your feet are always hot in shoes and certain yeah. shoes? It's because they have synthetic fabrication in your footbed. But that those particular footbeds were more far more expensive, but they didn't conduct heat. So just small things that, and they also molded to your foot when you put your foot in. So I don't think all men knew why they loved that shoe. They just knew they loved that shoe. You're making me think I want a pair of those shoes. (laughs) We all all wanted a pair of those shoes. (laughs) Well, Marty, let's pivot one more time as we come towards the end of our conversation, because you're now also doing, I know, a goodly bit of executive coaching. Well, not not a lot. I, I have to say, Kathy, I... You know, I sit on five boards. Um, I think coaching comes in at Cambridge University because I'm a fellow there. So that that I get involved with students, which is great. I have people call me all the time and I do a touch of coaching uh, along the way. I've always coached. I just, I don't, I haven't always done it in a formal way. Yeah. Well, I'm curious as I you know, think back through all that we've talked about, which again, only is a tip of an iceberg of really all of your amazing experiences. In particular, with respect to women moving up or trying to move up through the business world, I wonder if you find there's what the challenges that they're struggling with is always different for each individual or each sector, or whether there's some broad commonalities of challenges Mm -hmm. that almost like a DNA of the challenges that you wrestle with to move up in executive leadership. Yeah, I think things have changed just a tiny bit. There are some things that are quite common. Today, one of the things I'm very happy about with young women that I that I get involved with is that they don't feel barriers when they go into an organization. They feel like they're very well treated. They come out of university or wherever they're coming from, and they go in, and they're pretty much paid the same, men, women, and they go in. So I have a lot of young women, and one of the things that one time you asked me is, what didn't you know <laughs> that yeah. you should have known years ago if you were going to ask? <laughs> one of them is... I don't know. I don't know. I I didn't know. I didn't know at at a time in my life. I have a lot of young women say, oh, it's all fine. It's all just perfect and everything. And it's no problem. And we're just coming along. And I sometimes say, well, just wait. (laughs) Because one of the just waits is when I was working with McKinsey, I was, I I went to speak at one of their leadership. They do a a, a biannual leadership conference for for their women leaders and I went to speak at that and but they gave me all the reports that they had published and I've always focused on the boardroom I'd always focused on the top leadership tier and what I really realized in reading their research is the big challenge is that first promotion that 50% in general more men are promoted than women 
So that's where it actually starts in that first level of promotion. And then you just keep going up the channel and it just continues to become more challenging. So I think that's one of the things I said, you know, you and I met through friendship. We had nothing in common in general. Uh, you went to space. I was going to say, I didn't go to work on a bomb, but I did have people's lives in my hands. <laughs> yes, you did. Certainly their, li- certainly their livelihoods, but I wasn't on a bomb uh, going into space. But I think we have to really think about, we met through friendship because we wanted to learn about what we did have in common and what we could teach one another. And through the years, you've taught me so much and uh, probably vice versa in our own way. Oh, but, very much. And that that we all have some common challenges that we can learn from one another. And I'm just hoping that young people realize that and they become more curious. I came today, I was at the Royal Warrant. There's Royal Warrants given in the UK to companies. So I was sort of permission to cite a Royal affiliation. You you can't just say the queen loves me if you've not been given a warrant. People are granted um, Royal Warrants. So I was at the Royal Warrant Uh, society's uh, annual luncheon. And I had a young woman sit next to me that never asked me a question. She just talked about things. And she was talking about things that I actually knew a lot about. And so she seemed like a bit of an idiot. And I was reminded to say, if you're a young person, it's probably pretty important to ask questions and not just, just talk. um, Because you'll probably learn, learn something. And uh, she's a smart girl talented, all of those things. But I realize that she talks more than she listens. So I find that with young people a lot. But on the other hand, the ideas, the curiosity, sometimes it's really great that, again, you don't know what you don't know, because you wouldn't try things if you knew. (laughs) (laughs) So who knows? But I, I, uh, when I, you know, but I do think there are many common, common issues. And that is sooner or later, Kathy, you and I know, you're going to stumble, you're going to fail. And who you have around you and who you have nurtured relationships with going up the ladder are very helpful if you have to take a different ladder down or you come down the same ladder. Or maybe you have to cross ladders to go up a different different direction. Those people that are around you are so important to you. Because I think, you know, in the end of the day, it's it's those great friendships and also your, the love of your family and, and people who get up every day and believe in you that, that really help propel you forward and, and thinking about that. But I think, you know, just, just being reminded. Well, everyone in those circles has the scars on their knees and toes as well from their stumbles and falls. Yeah. I mean, you, we all know. I mean, I, you know, and working with you when you were reading your book, when you were re- writing the book about Hubble, so fascinating because Hubble could have been seen as a huge failure, and yet it, it putting a contact lens yeah, on essentially. A became the most amazing thing ever. And understanding that we could change things, yeah. So changing the trajectory is something so amazing. So sometimes your failures become, you know, propel you into success. Well, and in the Hubble case, rather like your comment on the young lady who sat next to you at lunch, the pivot point was reframing the question from how do we reshape the mirror to maybe we just need to fix the light. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we can just correct the light instead of correct the mirror. Yeah. And when it comes to women's leadership, there's one big, big issue that sits in the room always, and that's women have children and men don't. And how are we going to reshape that conversation? There's a million different ideas. 
But I think one of the greatest ones is my son called me the other day and said, you've got to get involved in this stuff. And I'm like, I've been involved for 40 years. What are you talking about? <laughs> but at least he's saying, he's asking those questions. Yeah. You know? And he's saying, what do we do? How do we, how do we make it better? What's the best thing? Long maternity leaves, family leave, all these debates that we're having, all these debates we're having in society today, whether it's government or not, about how we're going to, but we've got, we have to have people that run stores in the next generation. We have to have people who are willing to go to space in the next generation and people who are willing to do things we can't even dream of today. It's not all going to be done by machine learning. No, it's not. It's still going to take humans, human yeah. intelligence and creativity and, and the human sense of purpose and values. So I, I do think, Kathy, there's a couple of things. I was very lucky to be raised in the American West. We didn't have a lot of rules. If men cut, if boys cut cattle, girls cut cattle. <laughs> if girls skied, boys skied, and we all skied in the same place. We didn't have these mental barriers about what girls do and boys do. We didn't have any of that. So I was very lucky to not be bound by that. It was terrific. But I also you know, think that we have to think about, we don't really have all the best answers for anything. I always appreciated the fact that in the United States, we had defined maternity leaves and I needed to come back to work um, because we didn't hold my job for a year or two years. We didn't do any of that. And so I got back on the horse and figured out a way to do that. It's not simple, but it, but it, is, um, it, it got me back in the saddle and got me back going again. And I think uh, many women in the United States have been successful because they've kept their head in the game and, and they've moved forward. Yeah. Life is a challenging path for everyone and different challenges. <laughs> but it's so fun. <laughs> you know, part of the fun is not knowing what's around the next corner. That is great fun. Well, yeah. Marty, I can't wait to see what's around your next corner and uh, until we can meet in person again here, this side of the pond or the other side of the pond and uh, catch up on news of our pandemic times. But in the meanwhile, thank you so much for sharing your stories uh, during this hour. It's been great. It's been great to be with you. Anytime we're together, it's terrific, Kathy. Thanks so much. All right. You take good care. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, Along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.